And happy Sunday. It is Sunday morning. I have, as usual, my neuro coffee in hand, and I'm ready to go with uh, this week's Q&A. Uh, quick review. I uh, did post a bunch of stuff this week, so I want to review that real quick. So last week's Q&A, if you didn't watch that, please do so. It's on YouTube. This is YouTube stuff. I threw up a Padawan lesson on ankle mobility, weightlifting, shoes, and squatting. Got a lot of good feedback on that. Seems like that was an interesting conversation for a lot of people. Also showed you a quick and dirty video about how to do your knee special test and lickety split in just a few seconds. Whether they're useful or whether or not, that's a different discussion. But if you have to do them, if you have to execute them, there is an easier way to do so. So keep that in mind and watch that video. And then I threw up a, a coaching conversation that I had with my buddy Andy McCloy. So Andy and I both have something in common. We both have uh, bionic hips. And so we both have some issues associated with the way that we train now compared to the way we used to train. And so that was a really interesting conversation in regards to strategies on how to self-monitor as well as to execute uh, certain types of activities that will either support or contradict some of the, uh, the uh, contraindications associated with having, having total hips. So that was a really interesting conversation, and he's an awesome dude. I suggest you look him up. He's got some great stuff, has one of the best business models I think you'll, you'll see anywhere, and so I suggest you try to follow him. On Instagram, um, evaluating in context, that was an interesting little scenario that came up last week. I thought it was kind of important, so I threw a video up on that. Um, put up a, a little post on dorsal rostral expansion, so we talk about that a lot in regards to inhalation strategies and such and how it influences movement, but I actually put up a, uh, a video that actually lets you see what it looks like when you do have a favorable response in regards to an inverted position, so, so check that out. Um, there's a video up on how to measure hip flexion, kind of a big deal because I think that the way that hip flexion has been measured by tradition is very limited in scope and thought process. So if I was to be so bold, I would say that it is taught wrong and it is interpreted wrong. And so, so check out that video and hopefully that's useful. And if you have any more questions about that, I would love to expand on that topic. I uh, also threw up on Instagram some propulsive strategies, some late propulsive strategies, um, using an old classic, um, I think it was Charles Poliquin that probably made it popular at one point, using the Peterson step-up and also a low-box rear-foot elevated step-up. So check that out. And then I threw up a, a Instagram story this week on a bunch of activities that I've been doing to reestablish some eccentric orientation with load. So that's an interesting little, little twist on that video. So check those out. And... Let's dive into this week's Q&A. I got a ton of questions. I, I tried to narrow it down as much as I could. Um, so just remember that uh, askbillhartman at gmail.com and then put in the uh, subject line, ask Bill Hartman question. So I know that you're really asking me a question and not trying to sell me something. Um, so let's get started with those. So this is TS Training Systems. Bill, can you give a quick overview about the uh, propulsion phases. Yes, I can. Um, so you didn't ask me an open-ended question, so there's the answer. Kidding, of course. So when we talk about the propulsive phase, let's let's first of all talk about the difference between load and propulsion. So load is what what pre-exists based on gravity, the internal forces that you produce yourself, and then the external forces applied to you based on on all the physics 
that are around you. So if I put a barbell on your back, I've just altered the, the loading parameters. If I move laterally, I've altered the loading parameters. So those are all those three things combined. The propulsive strategy is what I use against those to produce the desired intent or, or movement. So when we talk about propulsive phases, we can break these down to make it a little bit simpler into something we would consider an early propulsive phase, sort of a mid or maximal propulsive phase, and then an end propulsion. So at either ends of the propulsive spectrum, we're moving through a compressive internally rotated pronated strategy towards a, a more supinated. So I land in supination, I move through my propulsive phases as I move to internal rotation, pronation, exhalation, and then at the end of that phase, I resupinate, I move back towards external rotation and, and inhalation. And so the two ends of the propulsive spectrum kind of look the same, but they're not the same. While one's moving from a more inhaled to an exhale, the other one's moving from more of an exhale to an inhaled strategy, um, they, they end up looking similar, but the orientation of the pelvis is just slightly different. As we go through the mid-propulsive phase, that is where the maximum concentric strategy would be as I move against all of the external forces that are applied to me and the internal forces that I produce. And so, um, again, we, if we use gait, we're landing in supination, we'll move towards pronation, which is my propulsive phase, and I will resupinate the foot at, at end range. So I will have activities and exercises and elements of performance that will emphasize one of these phases or another. So if I can identify where the limiting factor is in performance, I can then select the appropriate activities or the appropriate positions to emphasize each of those propulsive phases. And so we have this endless array of exercises. And once we can identify where these limitations are in our propulsive capabilities, the exercise programs kind of write themselves. And so, so this is a really huge topic that we cover at the intensive, especially during the practical com component, because a lot of people think that there the, the some sort of standardized exercise progressions, when the reality is, is the progression needs to be individualized towards the, the client or the athlete that we're working with in regards to what do they do well, what do they not do well, and then what is our intent? Are we trying to emphasize something that they're already good at, or are we trying to work on, on, a, on a weakness or a limitation? And so again, as we look at this from, from the beginning of the propulsion to the end of the propulsion, there's definitely things that we need to emphasize. But to, just to wrap that up, remember that early propulsion is moving from an inhaled state towards an exhaled state. The maximum propulsion is, is where I am maximally pronated through ground contact, and then I move again towards the inhaled state towards the end, and I can, again, self-select the uh, activities that would be most appropriate for each of those phases. So hopefully that gives you a little taste of, of what we're talking about, and I'd be happy to expand on those if you have a very specific question on that. Um, from, it looks like, Kina MacD. Can you explain eccentric and concentric orientation? Once again, that's yes. Uh, you got to ask me an open-ended question, my friend. Um, is it different than short or long? I don't really care if you use short or long. I just think you need to understand what's really going on. So traditionally, we've talked about eccentric and concentric contractions, and I don't think it's a very good descriptor. And so when I use eccentric or concentric orientation, so orientation makes reference to position. So if I have a muscle that is positioned 
at length greater than its perceived midline, wherever that may be, and we can use that sort of as our imaginary middle point. Um, if it's positioned eccentrically, then it would be positioned in the long position, and if it's positioned concentrically, it would be positioned in its short. But the reason I use eccentric and concentric orientation because there's certain properties that are associated with those positions. So if I am concentrically oriented, it is much easier for me to recruit that muscle during activity. If I'm eccentrically oriented, it is much more difficult. So there are properties within the muscle itself in regards to, to how I sense that position and how I am able to recruit that muscle that I think makes the eccentric and concentric orientation better descriptors. I also don't particularly like the fact that uh, concentric and eccentric contractions are, are kind of vague. And so I tend to use an overcoming contraction versus a yielding contraction rather than calling them concentric or eccentric contractions. Because again, I just think it's a better descriptor. So for instance, I could have a muscle that is eccentrically oriented, so it's longer than its midline, and it could be using an overcoming contraction. So uh, what someone might recognize is they might actually call that an eccentric contraction, even though the force is going in the in the opposite direction of the lengthening of the muscle. And so again, I think that there's some some vagueness to to the way that we've used those those terms in the past. So what I'm trying to do is clarify what's really going on in regards to position, concentric or eccentric orientation, and to contraction with an overcoming contraction or yielding contraction, just because I think they're better descriptors. And maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm willing to be wrong on that because I'm not a big fan of, of useless jargon. But again, as we've had discussions at IFAST and, and through the intensive, these terms have evolved into something that has become a lot more useful. One, uh, The next question, rather, comes from Tanner Batten. How do you approach rehabbing a core muscle injury or sports hernia? So this brings up an interesting concept. I'm not a big fan of treating by diagnosis, so I don't think it really influences me a whole lot other than maybe having to provide an element of protection to certain tissues that, that may actually have a, a change in their constraint. So we do have an area that may be affected in the, in the lower abdomen or the groin area by its diagnosis, but as far as the treatment goes, I treat the human being in regards to its ability to recapture this spectrum of, of, of breathing capabilities, full movement from external rotation to in, internal rotation, the loading and propulsive strategies. So that's how I look at things from, from this, this global perspective. So it, whether we call it a sports hernia or whether we had a shoulder injury or a toe injury or whatever it may be, that just simply guides me into an element where I might need to protect something, but I wouldn't change my, my treatment strategy all that much in regards to any specific diagnosis. So, so I wouldn't, I know you're looking for something specific here as far as what exercises I would do. I have no idea until I would evaluate this person. Um, other than, like I said, this might just guide you in an element of protection. So we don't want to we don't want to negatively influence this by by allowing a great deal of of discomfort to be associated with the with the treatment itself. So I would caution you against trying to say, oh, this is a sports hernia protocol. I don't think those things exist. I think we have to treat the humans. Um, I I can't pronounce this name. Uh, it looks like A F H O O G S. So however you pronounce that. Um, this is a student question, so this is exciting. 
Uh, do you have any advice on handling the current DPT education, knowing that much of it is no longer best practices? So that's a really, really strong question. I, I like this a lot. First, let me throw this out. In physical therapy, there is no such thing as best practices. It's impossible. We're dealing with complexity. At best, what we have are what's called emergent practices. So we don't know what will be the best choice. What we have to do in the case of, of a complex situation is we have to intervene and then we reassess. So, so you, you have what is presented, so that's our evaluation. We provide an intervention, and then we reevaluate for what the outcome is. And then that guides us in our practice. So that is an emergent type of, of practice. And so there are no best practices. So right away, um, that's in favor of the, of the PT curriculum in, in a way, and that they're doing the best that they can. They're trying to provide you elements of education that they think are, are, are reasonable and necessary. Um, most of the curriculums have to teach a certain way because there's a board's exam that they have to support, um, which is unfortunate. Um, but I would also default to Max Planck's quote in regards to uh, science progresses one funeral at a time. And so there are, there are people that are in charge that are, are sort of driving these curriculum, curricula. I don't know, my Latin's kind of weak. Um, so, so they're driving these, these curricula, and they have, to, they have to do the best that they can. Now, I get to talk to some of these academic people on a regular basis just because of the, the fact that I have a student every semester. And, and they, they are in a pickle, too. There are things that they have to teach that they don't want to. But I think it's going to be a matter of practitioners like yourself that will uh, eventually take power. And, and rather than doing it like we have always done, I would hope that you would start to try to change those things. As a consumer, so as a student who is paying for an education, it is also your responsibility to ask questions. And I, and I think that that's something that, that unfortunately gets squelched in, in academia is that the instructors understand that there are things that, that don't necessarily apply in the real world anymore, but they have to teach them. And so they, they uh, uh, encourage students not to ask the difficult questions or they're incapable of answering them just because of the, the environment that, that they're teaching in, which is unfortunate. Because I think that, that when the student is paying an absorbent sum of money, um, they deserve to get what they pay for. Um, so what I would offer you, though, as a piece of advice is continue to educate yourself outside of your curriculum. So attend con continue education courses as you're allowed to, and you get discounts, which is really nice. But I would also encourage you to try to learn as much as you can with the understanding that there will be information in conflict. And so what this does provide, though, is a, is a very powerful concept called an earned opinion. So when you can argue multiple sides of, of anything, that allows you to have an informed and earned opinion, um, which gives you the, the capacity to see things from multiple sides and allows you to problem solve much more effectively. So let's not look at this as a negative that you're stuck in this curriculum. Let's look at the curriculum as, as one viewpoint, and then let's look at this expansive amount of information and education that's available to you um, that will provide you with this, this earned opinion that eventually will, will, again, give you great power in regards to how you intervene with your patients. All right, so this, this one comes from, he say, she say, TK. That's nice, that's a nice little rhyme. 
Uh, Bill, are you seeing any differences in typical presentations from the neck up in people with inhalation bias versus exhalation bias? Absolutely. So just like the representations that we would see in, say, the infrasternal angle in regards to breathing strategy, we'll see the same thing in the neck. So if we use the hyoid bone as a representation, the hyoid bone is just another ISA. It's another infrasternal angle. So an elevated hyoid would be a compressed uh, airway, which would be the equivalent to a wide ISA in the thorax. So in opposition, then, if we would see somebody with a descended hyoid, that would be an open airway, which would be representative of somebody that's inhalation biased and a narrow. So you would typically see those things. And so now you know what you're actually looking at when you see the traditional forward head. So that'd be upper cervical extension, lower cervical flexion. You'll see a descended hyoid. This is somebody with a passively retruded mandible under those circumstances. And then it's just a matter of restoring the opposing strategy if we're trying to restore variability to that neck. And, and on the other end of the spectrum, if we see the elevated hyoid and, and the compressive strategy, then what we have there is an actively retruded mandible that is, that is narrowing their way. And again, if we understand how to reduce that compressive strategy and restore the open airway, which is as simple as a head tilt chin lift, a la CPR, then we can reinforce those positions during the activities that we have selected. So um, your second half of your question, is there any case where you would try to cue a position or action from the neck up, along with biasing um, intra-rotation pronation or extra-rotation supination? Absolutely. And so what we have to understand is the entire system is behaving under every circumstance. So it may be as subtle as an orientation of the cranium on top of the cervical spine in regards to that last piece of, of an activity. It's like, how do I want you to, to manage your head and neck position as you're doing a half kneeling cable chop or something under those circumstances that will reinforce the ability to restore that variability without having to create some sort of special exercise. So uh, again, to, to do a quickie review on this, it's like, yes, you do see those representations. Yes, they do follow. Um, what the, the remainder of the system is doing. And yes, we can influence that under every circumstance of activities, whether we're trying to reinforce the capability or restore variability to that system. So hopefully that answers your question. All right, my, my boy Matt Stigler has a couple questions here. Um, and I think this is going to be very, very similar to a question from Drew Brooks. And I'm going to try to answer these a little bit differently if I can, and maybe that'll be meaningful. To, to everyone that is watching. So Matt says, if a squat is an expansion pattern and deadlift is a compressive pattern, does that mean that someone with a narrow infrasternal angle would generally be a better squatter since they have more space to expand into, or would they generally be a better deadlifter since they already since they are already in an exhaled compressed position? So that's a misunderstanding right there, I believe, my, my friend. Um, because somebody with a narrow uh, infrasternal angle that's lacking full respiratory variability would tend to be biased towards an inhaled position. So this would be somebody that would represent what we would think of as a better squatter than a hinger. So your people that have trouble with kettlebell swings, RDLs, or any sort of traditional what we would refer to as hinging patterns um, would tend to have difficulty with those because... The orientation of the sacrum is counter-nutated, uh, which is an inhaled position, um, which would be opposed to a hinging pattern just because the pelvic axis is, is more straight down. So if, if we were standing uh, upright, the, the pelvic axis would be more straight down and somebody that has an inhalation-based 
strategy or a narrow infrastructure in most circumstances because the expansion of the, the of the pelvic diaphragm its eccentric orientation is is anterior and inferior so it goes straight down so they're better squatters the people that are better hingers tend to have a more nutated or an exhaled position of the sacrum which tilts the sacrum forward and now the pelvic axis is no longer vertical it's actually tilted posteriorly and so of course the pelvis is going to follow that axis and so again that we have a rudder basically uh, that the sacrum represents that controls the fluid shift that goes down into the pelvis, and then that's what directs the direction that the hips and pelvis will go. So again, if, if your inhalation bias, you'll tend to be a better squatter. If your exhalation bias, you'll tend to be a better deadlifter. Uh, Matt then asks a second question. So apparently, you're allowed to ask more than one question. Hint, hint. So um, he says, can you expand more on the suitcase carry that I posted recently in a video? So I tried it myself, and with a test retest of intro and external rotation, my shoulders, there was a significant improvement. So there's no big shocker there. So what we're doing with the suitcase carries, we're, we're creating a, a stabilized element of the system that everything must then move through internal and external rotation around. But we're also creating a, a, a bias of compression and expansion in other areas. So without the external load, you may be biased towards an inhalation and exhalation strategy in certain areas. We add a load that you must respond to this. So the system will respond by creating an alternative compression and expansive strategy. So for instance, if I carry uh, a heavy kettlebell in my left hand and, and I walk, then I have to create a, a compressive strategy in the, the right abdominals, for, for lack of better explanation, which will promote uh, a certain type of expansion in the left upper thorax which actually helps me to restore certain elements of shoulder rotation as I gain eccentric orientation in the upper thorax that I may have um, been biased towards that was actually reducing my internal and external rotation capabilities. So basically that's how that, that kind of an activity works. And then depending on what your goal is and where you need to create eccentric orientation or expansion to restore movement, then we can strategize other elements of carry. So for instance, if I did a rack carry or an overhead carry, I'd be biasing myself towards inhalation in certain places, compression in other places. So it's just a matter of, of understanding where my response is to the load and then where does the expansion occur and where does that expansion provide me an element of restoration of, of movement. So again, there's a couple ways to go about this. Um, one is, is understanding a little bit more about uh, what the muscle activity is in response to where the load is or simply just experiment with yourself. Like take a day, do a whole bunch of different carries and then Give yourself some sort of self-assessment or, or reevaluation in regards to how you respond to those activities, and you will find that you will be uh, favorably responding to, to certain types, and then there will be other types of activities that, that actually may steal some of your, your movement capabilities, and so those will be the activities that you would want to stay away from if the goal is to restore this maximum, maximum amount of variability, or to actually may enhance your ability to do certain things. So if I can create a better compressive strategy under certain circumstances, my force production goes up. So maybe I actually help my bench press by doing a certain type of, of carry, or maybe I improve my ability to, to deep squat or reach overhead by restoring some eccentric capabilities. So again, keep in mind that, it, that this goes in both directions, depending on whether I'm trying to reinforce something good um, in, in regards to, to performance or whether I'm trying to restore something 
um, for, a, for a more favorable movement-based outcome. Um, so next question comes from Drew Brooks. Um, why is the squat a, a, an eccentric expansive inhale-based movement pattern? So again, if we go back to the, to the previous questions in regards to, to squatting or, or deadlifting, so I need to have an eccentric capability to move. So I cannot move through a concentric strategy. It's the eccentric orientations that will allow me to move in a specific direction. So if I have a compressive strategy posteriorly, so let's just say that I'm a power lifter, I use a big arch on my bench press, which is a massive amount of compressive strategy on the posterior side of the body. So what that's going to do, it's going to limit my deep squatting capabilities because the pelvic axis will tip, tip um, uh, forward, which means that the rudder, as we said before, the, the sacrum will nutate and the pelvis will move posteriorly in response to that. So again, that steals my ability to sit down. I would sit back into more of a, of a hinging capability. So what I need to be able to do is move into a traditional inhaled strategy, which is counter-nutation of the sacrum which is anterior-posterior expansion of the thorax, and that's what allows me to move into this squatting pattern. So what we would say is I need an inhalation bias to allow me to move towards a true deep squat. doesn't mean you can't squat below parallel, but what it would do is it means that at some point in time, I will max out my eccentric capabilities, and that will limit the depth of my squat. So ultimately, what I want to be able to do then is capture enough eccentric orientation or inhalation bias to allow me to deep squat. Um, so hopefully that clarifies that to a certain degree. Um, apart from a squat, this is still Drew. Uh, apart from a squat, what are the other uh, key expansive movement patterns? Well, that would be really nice if we could just make an exhaustive list. But the reality is, is that every activity that you choose will have elements of an expansive strategy or a compressive strategy. Uh, depending on what your goal is. So we could take a split squat and we could make it very, very compressive depending on what we're, what we're trying to do or we could make it very, very expansive. The nice thing about split stance orientation um, in, in regards to an exercise is that I can bias one side of the body. And so if I'm restoring rotations, this element becomes very, very important because wherever the expansion occurs will allow rotation to occur. So when we talk about baseball, golf, tennis, or other rotational sports, these split stance orientations and establishing these eccentric or expansive inhalation biases become very, very important in regards to strategy because the people with high compressive strategies cannot turn, which is why you start to see these deficits occur in these athletes that, that uh, uh, overuse strength training as a, an element of their performance enhancement, especially when they have to, to turn or rotate. Um, so again, hopefully that addresses some of that for you. Um, if you have a, a particular question about a specific exercise in regards to its capabilities, that might be a better question to ask next time, Drew. Um, going along here, we got Misha Noga. If someone has an anteriorly rotated pelvis, that is in an exhaled position with limited hip mobility, what would be the first step or exercise that you would use? So let's talk about position again. So I like to use the word orientation for position because I think it's a better descriptor because when we say anteriorly rotated, we're not really sure what we're rotating anteriorly. Do we have a relative position change in the pelvis where the ilium would be externally rotated and the sacrum counter-nutated, or do we have the entire pelvis oriented? So in this case, what we're going to say is, 
because you mentioned exhale position, that's a nutated sacrum, and then we're going to anteriorly orient, orient the entire pelvis, so the entire pelvis is tilted forward. So what that means is when you have an anteriorly orient, oriented pelvis, that is something that is occurring above the pelvis that orients the entire pelvis forward. So for instance, if I have a, an inhalation compensatory strategy where I would expand the thorax anteriorly, that would move the thorax forward, and then the pelvis will follow it uh, in, a, in an attempt to maintain uh, our position of our body over our center of gravity. And so that tilts the, or that orients the entire pelvis forward. So in that case, you have to eliminate that strategy first, which is a very, very superficially driven strategy. So all the big muscles on the backside of the body are driving that show and pushing everything forward. So what you need to do then is you have to create a position and use a strategy that will take all of that concentric orientation on the backside of the body and eccentrically orient it. So again, you might have to eliminate gravity, so maybe we have to lay somebody on their back, or we have to lay them on their side and allow them to capture that eccentric orientation because when they move against gravity, they tend to be biased towards this compressive, exhaled, concentric strategy. There's any number of exercises that can do that. Something as simple as is putting yourself in prone um, in, in what approximates a fetal position and then driving respiration in that position promotes expansion on the posterior aspect of the body. So something it could be that simple. It could be a heels elevated goblet squat could do that for you. There's any number. We do forwards and backwards rolls um, as an element of this to restore those eccentric capabilities on the posterior side of the body. So there's any number of activities that you could use. It depends on the environment that you work in. It depends on the individual that you're working with. You know, so if you had somebody that was, you know, uh, worked behind a desk for 40 years and was non-athletic and a non-exerciser, you might have to use a totally different strategy than someone that is a, an athlete that's trying to, to recapture this eccentric orientation. So whereas one might be very, very active and we take them over to a, to an area and it looks like a fourth grade gym class with a lot of rolling patterns and such versus somebody that might be on their back on a table and trying to recapture this eccentric orientation. So again, for me to give you an, an absolute as to what would be the first exercise, it depends on the person. And so you have to take that into consideration. The thing that we don't want to do that I encourage people not to do is don't turn uh, people that are active and athletic into rehab clients. Um, there's been a, a lot of influence of, of dragging rehab into the performance realm, and it does not need to happen. Um, they are two different two different uh, environments and, and should be treated as such. Our next question from, it looks like Raba Rahil. I hope I got that right. Um, what is the most impactful philosophical book you have read? Um, wow, I don't like... I don't like questions that limit me to one um, because I don't think that way. Um, but if you're just getting an introduction into any form of philosophy, which I, I, I do uh, encourage people to do, it just helps with self-regulation and self-awareness. When self-awareness is the greatest superpower you could possibly have, um, there's a lot of ways to, to break in, into philosophy. Um, probably the simplest answer to this would be to look at... Um, the, the books of, of Ryan Holiday, um, is he, he and a couple of the people like uh, Tim Ferriss, the people that are popular on the Internet, 
that, that uh, preach the, the Stoic philosophies, it tends to be a really good place to start because it's one, it's understandable, and it's, it's somewhat useful. It's easy to implement. Um, and I, I pulled some books off the shelf, but if you go with uh, Obstacle is Away, Ego is the Enemy, and then whatever, what's Ryan's new book? I don't know if I have it out. That's not uh, uh, Something Stillness. I can't remember but you'll see it. So if you get those three books and, and you'll be able to buzz through those in, in three or four days if you if you take some time to read, those are great places to start. There's tremendous amounts of information for free on, on the internet. Just Google Stoicism. Um, but once you start to read that and then you start to break into some some other variations. So so there's there's some Buddhist philosophy that is very, very useful. There's some meditative stuff that goes that is associated with that that I find useful. Um, if you want to go the, the stoic route and you, and you want to get past some of the, some of the, the commercial, you want to look at some of the more traditional stuff. So what do I got here? The Practicing Stoic, a Philosophical User's Manual. So there's one right there. Um, I'm a big fan of Marcus Aurelius when it, when it comes to um, the, the stoic-based influences. Um, I don't, I'm not a big fan of, of uh, Seneca. It, it seemed like uh, Marcus Aurelius, and again, I'm just going by my own opinions here, that um, he actually tried to live the philosophy where I said some of it that you get from Epictetus or, or Seneca seems to be like a do as I say, not as I do kind of a thing. Um, this is a great book um, that you could probably read in a weekend. Um, it's a great little story, but it, it's a great way to lay out philosophy. And this is the courage to be disliked. And then again, another one of the beginner's guide um, for stoicism is uh, a, a guide to the good life. Um, but again, those are, those are, some decent recommendations to get you started. And then I would say, like I said, read uh, Ryan Holiday's books um, in, in, in regard to the sort of an updated version, uh, readable uh, stoic element, if you will. Um, so that pretty much wraps up this week's Q&A. I buzzed through it kind of quickly because I got a hot date with a blonde, so I apologize. But if there's any other questions, you can, you can list them below in the comments. Or you can contact me through Instagram uh, at BillHartmanPT. Or you can ask BillHartman at gmail.com a question to me. Remember the subject line, ask Bill Hartman question. Um, so I know that you're not trying to sell me something because I'll automatically delete it otherwise. So I hope you have a, uh, a great week coming up. And we'll be answering questions and posting stuff throughout the week. So I will see you later.